Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. Before I get started, I just wanted to let you know that this episode, episode three, and the next episode, which is episode four, were recorded as one in one sitting. Uh, But for the sake of keeping the episodes around or under 30 minutes, I split it in half. uh, So the episode will end kind of abruptly. But that's because the other half of the conversation is going to be in the next episode. So I thought I'd let you know that. But enjoy. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm excited to get into the content of the book that I've been talking about over the past few episodes. The book is called Critical Race Theory, an introduction. And the book is by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanik. As I mentioned in previous episodes, this book is academically dense, so it took me a little while to get through it and to kind of tease out some parts that uh, I could share with y'all here on the podcast, but I'm definitely excited to get into some of my quotes and notes that I took from the book. So I'm going to start out with a longer series of snippets that do a really great job of explaining some of the basic tenets of critical race theory. I tried to give an overall definition of what critical race theory was in episode one, but I think that what I'm about to share will kind of solidify that and give a better view of critical race theory, which is a really complex concept. Um, But the goal here on this podcast is to have a grasp or understanding of what it is, because a lot of what most people see is those who greatly oppose critical race theory in the media. And as mentioned in the first two episodes, there's a lot of people who have a lot to say about critical race theory, but really don't even know what it is. So I'm going to jump in. Quote, The critical race theory CRT movement is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, setting, group and self-interest, and emotions, and the unconscious. Unlike traditional civil rights discourse, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. Critical race theory sprang up in the 1970s as a number of lawyers, activists, and legal scholars across the country realized, more or less simultaneously, that the heady advances of the civil rights era of the 1960s had stalled and, in many respects, were being rolled back. 
realizing that new theories and strategies were needed to combat the subtler forms of racism that were gaining ground, early writers such as Derrick Bell, Alan Freeman, and Richard Delgado put their minds to the task. They were soon joined by others, and the group held its first workshop at a convent outside Madison, Wisconsin in the summer of 1989. Further conferences and meetings took place. Another feature of critical race theory, sometimes called interest convergent or material determinism, adds a further dimension. Because racism advances the interests of both white elites materially and working class whites psychically, large segments of society have little incentive to eradicate it. Another theme of critical race theory, the social construction thesis, holds that race and races are products of social thought and relations. Not objective, inherent, or fixed, they correspond to no biological or genetic reality. Rather, races are categories that society invents, manipulates, or retires when convenient. People with common origins share certain physical traits, of course, such as skin color, physique, and hair texture but these constitute only an extremely small portion of their genetic endowment, are dwarfed by what we have in common, and have little or nothing to do with distinctly human, higher-order traits, such as personality, intelligence, and moral behavior. That society frequently chooses to ignore these scientific truths, creates races, and endows them with pseudo-permanent characteristics is of great interest to critical race theory. Another, somewhat more recent development concerns differential racialization and its consequences. Critical writers in law, as well as in social science, have drawn attention to the ways the dominant society racializes different minority groups at different times in response to shifting needs such as the labor market. At one period, for example, society may have had little use for blacks, but much need for Mexican or Japanese agricultural workers. At another time, the Japanese, including citizens of long standing, may have been in intense disfavor and removed to war relocation camps. Closely related to differential racialization, the idea that each race has its own origins and ever-evolving history is a notion of intersectionality and anti-essentialism. No person has a single, easily stated, unitary identity. A white feminist may also be Jewish or working class or a single mother. An African-American activist may be male or female, gay or straight. Everyone has potentially conflicting overlapping identities, loyalties, and allegiances, end quote. So that was a longer quote. I just pieced together several of my highlights from the introduction of the book. I think those do a great job at giving a snapshot of kind of the depth to this conversation of what critical race theory is. Um, Some of it, it gets a little in the weeds on detail, but overall, I hope that you were able to get 
a couple of uh, nuggets of information from that particular part. So for the rest of this episode, I'm going to go through some quotes that I wrote down from the book, but also one of the things I really liked about this book is that at the end of each chapter, there are some discussion questions. So throughout the chapters, I've been highlighting some questions that I want to discuss on the podcast. So the first discussion question came from chapter one, and the question is, most people of color believe that the world contains much more racism than white folks do. What accounts for this difference? So think about that for a second. I like this question because it talks about the discrepancies between those who are impacted by racism and those who are not. I definitely find in my own life that white people don't grasp the the depth and the amount of racism that people of color do face. And the book talks about how there are several points in recent history where people think that we've gotten to a point of being in a post-racial society. A big one is the election of Barack Obama as president. And if I'm being honest, I would say that for most of my life, I've kind of felt that way as well, uh, where you know, we look at civil rights era protests and things like that as something that happened in the past and how we've overcome that. Uh, Unfortunately, in the past decade, I have become increasingly aware of how there's still a lot of work left to do. And we've taken several steps back in recent years, and it's very apparent that there's the racism is still alive and well in the United States. So that's kind of my answer to that question. A big critique of critical race theory, I, I mention this a lot, but there are people who really hate the idea of critical race theory influencing anything. And one of their main arguments is that it's rewriting history or it's changing history. Uh, Some call this revisionist history. And so here's a quote that I think is a great defense to that idea that critical race theory aims to change history. Uh, I would argue that critical race theory is trying to shed light on things that have been suppressed. So here we go. Quote, revisionist history re-examines America's historical record, replacing comforting, majoritarian interpretations of events with ones that square more accurately with minorities' experiences. It also offers evidence, sometimes suppressed, in that very record to support those new interpretations, end quote. And I think that's a very concise explanation as to as a response to those who say that critical race theory is about rewriting history or, uh, you know, people will say that, uh, you know, school systems that have any influence from critical race theory, that it's like brainwashing, um, or uh, even they'll say that it's reverse racism, that it's to make white students feel bad about history and stuff like that. Um, 
my caveat to the three episodes I've done on this topic so far is that a lot of people with the loudest voices truly have no clue about what critical race theory is and are pretty much talking out of their ass. But I'm going to continue with some discussion questions from chapter two. If society agreed to treat everyone, including people of color, exactly the same, would the condition of communities of color improve very much? So think about that question for a second. So my answer to this question, basically it's saying, well, to eliminate racism, shouldn't we just treat everybody the same? And it, the question asks, what impact would that have on communities of color? As a person of color, my answer to this question is that treating everyone the same would be a start. Uh, however, people of color have never been treated equally as white people, just historically speaking. So if we had like a magic wand where everyone was treated the same, I think that that would be a, uh, some steps forward than from where we are currently. However, if you do that at the expense of not reckoning with harms and traumas that have been done, it slips into the territory of the colorblind uh, mentality. But they say things like, I don't see color. And a lot of people of color have responded to that by saying, you're not helping by saying you don't see color. Because in other words, you're willingly being ignorant to experiences, histories, traumas, and identities that people of color uh, hold dearly. I guess going back to that question, treating everybody exactly the same on the surface level as like magical thinking, it sounds like it could get us somewhere. However, I'm somewhat pessimistic in that I've never seen a world where people are really being treated equally. Um, obviously, I would love that if some magic situation could happen. However, since I'm also a realist, I would say that in order to get closer to that equity and equality, we really still have to reckon with what has been done. Because any sort of response that goes along the lines of, oh, we're all going to be treated equally, we're all on the same page, without doing that reckoning and understanding the impact on the current systems, any like shortcut to, you know, a kumbaya existence is not real uh, progress. It is uh, uh, ignorance is bliss kind of uh, approach. And that does more harm than good, uh, in my opinion. Um, so the next question is, beginning with the Brown versus Board of Education decision and continuing through the 60s and early 70s, the Supreme Court handed down a number of decisions favorable to blacks and other minorities. Now, it has been limiting affirmative action and weakening enforcement under anti-discrimination laws. What explains the shift? So think about that question for a second. I'll keep my response to this one short. I believe that the peeling back and the lack of 
tenacity towards continuing civil rights efforts is due to the facade that a lot of people have, that we are past the Jim Crow era and we're past racism and that it's not that big of a deal anymore. Um, I mentioned in the last episode, we have a governor election coming up here in Virginia uh, two days from now at the time of recording this. And one of the candidates is endorsed by Donald Trump and uh, is basically appealing to the far-right conservative folks who believe that the United States was great the way that it was and that, and they've flat out said, we're going to outlaw critical race theories, influence, and uh, stuff like that. And as a person of color who went through the Trump administration uh, as a citizen, uh, I truly feel like a lot of progress that had been made prior um, took several steps back. And not just as a black person, but we saw Hispanic neighbors who have immigrated to the country. Uh, we saw a lot of racism there and uh, mistreatment and um, still continue to see that uh, people fearing deportation and stuff like that. And so going back to that question, it says, well, why or what explains the shift of a lot of the affirmative action and laws and things pushing forward the civil rights movement? Why are they kind of being peeled back? And I think that is twofold. It comes from people getting comfortable with thinking that it's all fixed now. Um, and there's also, I've seen, at least in the past five years, a um, an uprising of very conservative folks who believe that it's going too far, like uh, progressive steps are going too far and that we need to keep certain things the old-fashioned way. And I won't get too in the weeds here, but anytime there's a strong movement towards blocking change or advancement is precisely when those who are in the margins are going to be hurt the most. So if you're listening to this on election day or before you're heading out to the polls, I'm once again going to say it's very important to go out and vote, not just in presidential elections, but in every election. Exercise that right to vote and make your voice be heard. So the next question is more of a... Uh, it kind of continues on that same vein, but it's to kind of get you thinking and to start applying some of these elements of critical race theory that I've been talking about. So suppose you have a friend who believes in a militarized border and strict enforcement of immigration laws. During a discussion, you learn that she believes that immigration brings Mexican criminals and terrorists into the country and increases the chances of the next 9-11. You have read studies showing that regions that have experienced increased immigration, including the undocumented kind, see decreasing, not increasing, crime rates. You have also read that to date, not a single 
foreign terrorist is known to have sneaked across the border from Mexico. Are studies like these likely to persuade her to change her views on immigration? And if not, why not? So think about that for a second. For me, that's an easy question to answer. It's very unlikely to change someone's mind on something like that. In the United States, it has become commonplace to make a decision or take a stance and to just dig your heels in despite evidence to the contrary or misinformation. And I think there's definitely kind of like a, a cult following of some of these ideals. So as a therapist and just as somebody who's interacted with the public, I've definitely encountered people who really believe in the idea that the 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 border between the United States and Mexico should be, there should be a wall there and it should be uh, militarized so that people can't get into the country illegally. And so the question is asking, Okay, so we we have uh, reports and studies that show that immigration from Mexico is not correlated with increased crime rates, and there's no records to show that any terrorist action that has occurred has been from somebody who snuck into the country illegally. We can go further and say our biggest terrorist attacks and instances of terror, if we look at school shootings... They're usually by white males, United States citizens, right? So that's domestic terrorism. And the instances where terrorists were foreign to the United States, they came into the country legally via airplane with passports and whatnot. So the idea that all of these criminals are sneaking in across the Mexican border is based on the evidence that I've seen, unfounded. And unfortunately, we live in a world now where facts and reason don't always uh, get the same uh, influence and eyeballs as does an asshole with a large platform. Yes, I'm talking about you, Donald Trump. So next, I'm going to share a quote. Intersectionality means the examination of race, sex, class, national origin, and sexual orientation, and how their combination plays out in various settings. These categories, and still others, can be separate, disadvantaging factors. What happens when an individual occupies more than one of these categories, for example, is both female and black? Individuals like these operate at an intersection of recognized sites of oppression, end quote. Oftentimes, people who fall into a category of the margins, right, also have like a double minority status. For example, quote gives a, a woman that is also black. So you're there are societal disadvantages of being a woman due to sexism. And also, we know that there are 
societal disadvantages of being a person of color. Critical race theory takes into account that it's not just race in and of itself, but there it's more nuanced and complex than that. Hopefully that made sense. So the next question, discussion question, that I want to ponder here is, should minorities make an effort to fit in in social and work situations? Why or why not? So think about that for a second. Some of these questions feel loaded, um, and not loaded in a bad way, but I, I guess loaded is the wrong word. They feel, they, they evoke a response uh, as I read them and ponder them, um, which kind of makes it fun to go over this on the podcast. Um, and I'm interested to see some of the, the conversations that get sparked following the posting of this episode. But to go back to the question, should minorities make an effort to fit in? My answer is hell no. Because fitting in means assimilation. Assimilation means accepting that the white majority is the standard for quality of life. And that doesn't sound appealing to me. Fitting in usually comes at the detriment of individuality. And there is a lot of diversity. We do live in a melting pot. But the tolerance is not equal for different types of people. So that's, that's my answer for why fitting in does not seem to be the goal. Uh, and I can give an example. Uh, so I'm a, a therapist. And when I first opened my practice, I had decided that I wanted to start my dreadlock journey. And I remember that there were people who were my colleagues who said, are you sure that is professional? Um, Because at the time, uh, early on in my practice, I thought, oh, I still need to dress business casual. I need to appear a certain way uh, as a business owner and as a therapist, right? Um, And that really deterred me from giving the full effort to that dreadlock journey. And I think I only kept the uh, starter locks for like three weeks uh, before I just washed them out and kind of went back to my hairstyle of just having a, a neat afro. But fitting in is definitely uh, something that people of color have to reckon with. But I will say, over two years into having my own business, I have shedded that expectation of fitting in. Uh, I am now a, I do not dress business casual uh, when I do my job. I wear clothes that are comfortable to me, usually along the lines of um, gym attire or comfortable hoodies and sweatpants. Uh, and I have a massive dreadlocks that I prefer to wear in a style called the pineapple, which it literally looks like the dreadlocks are exploding out of the top of my head. Um, So unapologetically black and proud of my individuality. And I feel like my quality of life is much better than trying to fit in with the norm of wearing business casual and 
having a, quote, professional, neat appearance. So that's my two cents on that one. So like I said at the beginning of this episode, uh, I'm cutting this episode in half. So as you noticed, it kind of ends abruptly. Uh, Stay tuned for the next episode, which will come out on Thursday. uh, And it'll be the second half of the the conversation. So uh, until then, take care. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.